Brad Kennedy. Thank you, Marty Buck. Fellow students, if you would open to Malachi, it's the only Italian prophet. We call him Malachi from time to time. Last uh, book in the New Testament. So if you go kind of midpoint, the last uh, book in the Old Testament, the last book in the Old Covenant is Malachi. Uh, he's the, also not just the last prophet in the Old Testament. After Malachi spoke, God did not speak for how many centuries? 400 years. Would you find that intriguing? It's been said, Howard Hendricks once said, that last words are lasting words. And obviously this is not God's last word. The next session will jump into God's last word in Revelation. But it's interesting, if you knew that your spouse was not going to speak for 400 years, would you listen to the last words they said? Or would you have a party? Sorry, I just know some of you. I'm just telling you, right? So this, is, this Malachi is used by God for a very specific reason. The, the people have been back in the land of, of Israel, their own homeland, for about 100 years. And the age has not improved them. Their spiritual walk has actually deteriorated from the point they came back. They're actually in worse spiritual condition now than they were before they went into captivity. So Malachi is used by God to call his children back into a relationship with him. So we're going to jump into Malachi 3, if you would, and go to verse 7, and we're going to spend some time there. For from the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? That's an interesting question. Now I want you to think about something. In all human relationships, consensual human relationships, voluntary human relationships between equals, both parties negotiate the terms of the agreement. Yes? Between equals. This is not father, son, mother, daughter. This is between equals. Spouses are in the workplace, etc., etc. Here's what I will give to the relationship. And on the other side, here's what I expect from the relationship, right? So there's giving and getting. When you have a balanced give and take in an equal human relationship, you have a viable relationship, right? What happens when that value exchange breaks down and someone persistently and consistently takes more than they give? You break the agreement, and what happens to the relationship? It goes away, it goes bye-bye, right? People terminate their workplace relationships. Uh, people terminate their marriages, their friendships. So whether you're talking about the workplace, whether you're talking about marriage, whether you're talking about friends, whether you're talking about citizens and their government, right? You're supposed to provide X and I pay you taxes. This is what I give. This is what I get, right? That's equal human relationships. Now, God's relationship with humanity is very, very, very different. When God initiates a relationship with people, who establishes the terms of the relationship? God. Who? God. God and only God. See, our relationship with God, just FYI, I know you know this, is not a relationship between equals, correct? Say yes. yes. We really want it to be. We really want it to be, but it's not. So we humans can either accept or reject God's terms of our relationship with Him, but we can't negotiate them and we cannot change them. Now this makes us crazy. It does. It makes us very crazy. 
One of God's primary conditions for a relationship with him is obedience. Correct? Jesus said, if you love me, you will. He didn't say you will think about keeping my commandments. He said, if you love me, you'll obey me, right? Now, what concerns us about that is we really want to bring God down to a human level as human beings. We want to tell God our demands. What we really want to do, unregenerate man wants to go to God and say, God, if you want a relationship with me, here's what you have to do for me. In other words, we want to be the ones to tell God, God, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Right? You will do what I want you to do. You will answer my prayers in the way I want you to answer my prayers and when I want you to answer my prayers. Is that not true? We, yeah, I know. I'm saying we want it to be that way. She's absolutely correct. It doesn't work that way, but we want to change the terms and conditions of our relationship with God because human nature, apart from Jesus Christ, wants to be the center. We want to dictate our terms to God. And this, this self-centeredness always leads to disobedience and always distances us from God. Now, when you read the term in verse 7, if God says, return to me and I will return to you, what do you infer from that statement from God? They're obviously not as close as they should be, right? If God says return, the implication is somebody done left. Correct? I mean, you could make, make, make that assumption at that point in time. To return to God, in biblical terminology, we call that to repent. To repent means to turn around. You. you ever done a U-turn? Anybody have you ever done a U-turn? That's exactly what we're talking about. We're basically saying, I'm going the wrong direction. I didn't say the conditions you did a U-turn in, right? But a U-turn says, I'm obviously going precisely the wrong way. I need to make it a 180 and go back. It means to retrace your steps and go back. It's interesting that when God says, return to me and I will return to you, I want you to think about this. Is that a conditional promise or an unconditional promise? He says, if you will return to me, then I will return to you. Is that a little shocking? It says, you have moved away from me. If there's distance in your relationship with God, who moved? We did. God obviously never moves away from us. God is the father of many prodigal children. Remember the parable of the prodigal son? Jesus looks for, longs for people to return to him, but he will never, ever force you to return to him. He will never force you to return home. That's a choice that we make. Here's the key idea. You are right now as close to God as you want to be. You are right now as close to God as you want to be. But God would like you closer. So he says to each one of us, return to me. Return to me. Return to me. And I know many of us say, well, I'm in a relationship with God. Uh, Jesus is my Savior. I made a commitment of faith. I'm walking the walk. I don't care where you are in your walk today. There's a distance between you and the Lord that the Lord would like to close, correct? I don't care how close you are. You can be closer. And that's the heartbeat of our loving Heavenly Father. He wants a closer relationship with us. Now, in order to return to God, 
to reconcile with another person, it means we have to give up and leave whatever broke the relationship in the first place, right? We literally have to turn back from that which caused the relational break in the first place. A marriage that's broken by infidelity can't be reconciled until the infidelity is given up, right? right? You can't have it both ways. I have an acquaintance literally who told his wife that he wanted to have an affair just to try it <laughs> and see if he liked it. And he expected her to wait around for him to find out. Uh, I would have sold her a 45, but it didn't work. Dr. Phil did, yeah. She filed, and he was surprised. Now that's called delusional, right? That's looking in the mirror and seeing a whole lot more than's there. I mean, that's being way impressed with yourself, right? Needless to say. However, we should be grateful that we serve a Heavenly Father who is always on the front porch with the light on and the front door open. And He's waiting for you and I to what? Come home. Come home. Return. Return. So God calls Israel to return to Him. And how does Israel respond? If you look at verse 7, He says, Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, what? How will I return? You know what the implication is? They don't think they ever left. They think the relationship is really just fine the way it is. So one of the questions they ask is, what was stopping Israel from returning to God? What had caused the separation in the first place? And God's going to tell you in the next verse that the symptom of Israel's separation was stealing. Have you ever figured out that persistent theft is a good way to trash a relationship? If someone's stealing from you on an ongoing basis, what can you conclude about their opinion of you? It probably the relationship isn't viable, right? I mean, you know, that's just part of the territory at this point. So God told Israel if they wanted a relationship with him, they had to stop sleeping around with his money. His money. Furthermore, God told them they were sleeping with stolen money. Right? Go to verse 8. This is God speaking to Israel. He says, Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, How have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse. This is God talking. You humans are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. This is extraordinary language. God is indicting his children for robbery and pronounces a curse on them. Remember that God is not only God, He is our parent, right? Question, how can you rob God, your Father who is in heaven? What does God own that you could possibly steal? Israel is refusing to give God what is legitimately God's. God calls this robbery. Here's the equation. When you refuse to give your money, any piece of it, there's no magic percentage here, you are saying that more money without God's blessing is more valuable to you than less money with God's blessing. And Christians make that choice all the time. They'll take more money without God's blessing rather than less money with God's blessing. Now, does that strike you as remarkably stupid? 
So why do we drink that Kool-Aid? What is it about this that, I'll tell you, I'll give you an example. This is like your child stealing money from your wallet because they don't believe that you, their parent, will provide for their needs. They will steal money from you and squirrel it away in their piggy bank and they will put their trust in their piggy bank and not in your love for them. Can you imagine your five-year-old telling you that they will pay all of their own bills out of their piggy bank because they don't trust that you love them enough to take care of their needs? That's what we do to God on a regular basis. We put our trust in our 401k piggy bank, our career piggy bank, our brilliant skills piggy bank, our rich spouse piggy bank, our friendship network piggy bank instead of God. Now, by the way, money is not evil. Money is a neutral entity. It's our heart attitude towards it that creates the good or the bad. Theft, God calls them thieves, Theft is, quote, the unauthorized taking of property, unauthorized, from another with an intent to permanently deprive the person of that property. You've probably noticed that most thieves attempt to steal on the sly, right? Most thieves attempt to conceal their theft, right? Robbery, on the other hand, God uses the word robbery as a much stronger term. Robbery is theft accomplished through the use of physical force or fear. God says, you are robbing me. And we look at that and say, how can I apply physical force or fear to God? I mean, he's God, right? God uses the word robbery here, give, giving the distinct connotation that Israel has no intent to conceal their theft. They're not stealing from God on the sly. They're taking what is rightfully God's right in front of his face, almost daring him to do something about it. See, the reality is God owns it all. Yes? Amen. Now, if God owns it all, what do you own? Nothing. Some of you struggle with the last part of that equation. Let's try that again. <laughs> God owns what percent? 100%. If God owns 100%, what percent do you own? So why do you act like you own it when you don't? We are only managers. So the question is, why did, steal, why did God steal what, why did Israel steal what God owned? Here's a, here's a question I find interesting. What is the one thing that most people will tell you they can never get enough of? She doesn't say that. <laughs> this culture says you can never have too much money. Right? Do you know why people love money? Here's the principle. Some people, and I put some people, that wouldn't be any of you here, but some people love money more than God because money allows them to buy what God knows is lethal. I did it my way. I did it my way. I'm intrigued and I realize this is, credit cards are very much old hat cachet, but you know something? We love these things because it's close to Aladdin's lamp. We do. 
you can go on Amazon, click, 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 and you know something magical. All of a sudden, stuff starts showing up at your house, right? Boxes. You love those boxes from Amazon. Or you wave it in front of somebody, and you get a hotel, and you wave it, and they do this, and they start jumping and popping, and you go, man, I got one of these black cards, man. I feel like master of the universe. We like that because that's what humans want to do. We love money more than God because money allows us to buy more of what God knows is lethal. I did it my way. God now issues a command to Israel in verse 10 and a challenge. This is unique in all of Scripture. Normally, God does not tolerate anyone who tests him. But here, he throws the gauntlet right down in front of their face, and he challenges Israel to test him. Verse 10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and get your pens out. Test me now in this. He didn't say test me in anything else. He said, test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. The tithe literally means tenth. Now, the purpose of giving was to maintain God's house so that God's people could worship God in God's house. It was a proper worship format that that money was going to go to. It wasn't about the building, right? It was about the relationship between God and his people expressed through worship. Now, God says, test me when? When's the timing of this promise? Now. He says, test me now. He said, give today. He said, don't, don't test me when your circumstances improve. Don't test me when your credit score is over 800, baby. Don't test me when you get a better job. Don't test me when you pay down the debts. Don't test me when you um, win the lottery. He says, test me now in the middle of your messy life with your bills and your finances and all this other stuff. Test me now. You know something? There's never a convenient time to give. <coughs> Have you noticed that most of life is not convenient? We want stuff convenient. We want microwave everything. There's never a convenient time. The best time to give is when God says it's time to give. And that is now. Here's the principle. By faith, I didn't say by sight, this is a promise. By faith, joyfully give today, knowing that God's blessings will follow your obedience. We humans are absolutely magnificent at asking God for blessing without committing ourselves to being obedient. And then we are shocked, just shocked, that our life keeps running off the road. What have we said here for 15 years or 12 years? Sin makes you stupid. I kid you not. That is very true. That's why we have a culture that keeps making decisions and we go, what were they thinking? They're sinful. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They're lost. The light's out. Yes, ma'am. And um, he gave me 
an envelope. It was a thousand note. Wow. <laughs> and I still have a copy. <laughs> Hang on to that. Hang on to that. I, you know, I'm looking around the room, and there are people in this room who could tell me the same thing. Because God is faithful. God is faithful. He keeps his word. He always keeps his word. So the Old Testament commanded tithing. The New Testament's focus is on joyful, grateful giving. You might want to cross-reference this. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each one must do just as he or she has purposed in their heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Another cross-reference, 1 Corinthians 16, 2. 1 Corinthians 16, 2. On the first day of every week, let each one of you put aside and save as the Lord has prospered you. Now, the standard of giving in the New Testament is not by way of command, it's by way of love, right? When you love someone, do you find it hard to give to them? You, it brings you great joy to give to someone you love. It brings you great delight. If the only time you gave your spouse a gift is when they commanded you to, we might say that you feared your spouse, but we probably wouldn't be persuaded that you loved them because love is always voluntary. Love is always voluntary. Now, God gives you principles. He said, give just as you have purposed in your heart. You might make a note. The best kind of giving is planned giving. It's planned giving. It says, Lord, I'm committing to giving. I don't just give when I see a starving child on television. I plan to give to the priorities God's put on my heart. So purpose and plan. It says, God loves a cheerful giver. The word cheerful there is hilarious. The Greek from where we get hilarious. God loves a hilarious giver. Literally a giddy giver. A giddy giver. Giving should bring you joy. Giving should bring you great joy. You know, <clears throat> you don't go to your love and buy them their favorite gift. But when you give them the gift, you complain that you really didn't want to give it because it was so expensive, but you felt you had to. So here's the gift. Have a good day. How does God feel when you give and then you whine about it? Or you whine first and then give and then whine after too? <laughs> God, I really can't afford to give this. He says, give when? On the first day of the week. You know what that means? Make it a habit. Make it a habit. Make it a habit. I talk to people and they say, well, if I won the lottery, I would give. I said, I don't think so. You can't even be trusted with the dimes. What's God going to do with the dollars? If you can't handle a paycheck and you're going to win $10 million, I think you'll be as foolish with the $10 million as you are with your salary today. Nobody likes to hear that. Sometimes they need to hear it. That's just reality. Give regularly. Make it a habit. Not just when you feel like it. Here's the one that just slew me. Give as the Lord has prospered you. How has God prospered you? He saved your soul from hell by giving you his greatest treasure, his only beloved son. So the question would be, does my giving reflect how God has prospered my soul? 
Does my giving reflect how God has prospered my soul? See, human nature, we want to live by sight. We say, God, if you bless me first, then I will give you what's left after I'm done with it. That's like saying to the fireplace, first give me heat and then I'll put the wood in. You know that doesn't work, right? When you live by faith, you say, I will give to God first, trusting him, had he promised to provide for me. That's planting seeds in the springtime by faith, believing there will be a harvest in the fall. Does that principle work when you plant seeds in the spring, you get harvest in the fall? Does it work? Yeah, but it does. General, we've been doing it for six and a half thousand years. You know, farmers stopped doing it. Hmm. We'd, we'd all be on a forced weight loss program, right? God says, give me now first, bring the whole tide in the storehouse, but do it first. Question. Peter could not walk on the water until by faith he first got out of the boat and put his weight on the waves and those waves were moving by the way the Jordan River didn't part for Joshua and the Israelites to cross until the priests by faith first put their feet in the water yes God didn't rout 120,000 Midianite soldiers until Gideon by faith obeyed God by first reducing his army to 300 soldiers you know, after the enemy's routed, it's easy to say, well, 300, I only need 300. But when you're facing 120,000 soldiers, you're going to say, 300? God, what are you up to? God says, well, if I give you any more than that, you'll think you did it. But with 300 versus 120,000, it's pretty obvious that I did it. Right? So God's routinely going to put you in situations, hear me now, he will routinely put you in situations where you do not have the solution where there is no solution but Him, because then He will receive the glory and you will receive the blessing. Mark that down. Many of us would rather receive the glory even if we don't have the blessing. Many people would rather fail on their own than succeed and give God the glory. That's pride. That's human nature. So God is going to put you and I in situations this week where God, if you don't come through, it ain't going to happen. That's exactly correct. But his promise is better than your ability. So when he promises, it will certainly happen. Now, God makes an astonishing promise here to those who give by faith first. And he says, then I will open what? <clears throat> the windows of heaven for you and pour out a blessing until it overflows. Here's an intriguing question. You ever wonder how much blessing God has stored up in heaven for those who trust him enough to give first? How much blessing does he have in heaven behind the windows that he wants to open up and pour in your life? You know the real sad question, the real sad answer? Most people will never know. Because they don't believe God's promises. I love this church because this is a giving church. This is a church filled with people who believe that what God says he will do. And many of you in this room are faithful givers. 
And many of you have experienced God's miracles over and over and over and over. And sometimes it's the little things. It's just the little things. It's the phone call. It's the note. It's the card. It's the verse and the Holy Spirit just reminds us. That's the faithfulness of God in the little things. He longs to keep his word and he longs to bless you. When God says he's going to pour out a blessing until he overflows, it's not talking about raindrops. He's talking about a deluge. He's talking about a flood, right? Here's why God loves the hilarious giver. God loves the hilarious giver because when you give hilariously, God knows that you're trusting him more than money, number one. Number two, God gets excited when you get excited to see how he's going to supernaturally work with what you've entrusted him with. Have you ever thought when you give what God supernaturally does behind the scenes with that? When you give, you are by faith planting seeds. You know when you see the harvest? In glory. Luke 16 says that heaven will be populated with people who will come and thank you because they're in heaven because of your faithful giving. And one of the most magnificent, unbelievably mysterious things that God can do is he can take this cotton and linen when you trust him with it and he can turn it into eternal souls, people in heaven forever. I don't know how he does it, but he does it when we trust him. God's blessings go far beyond this world's stuff. Ephesians 3.20 says, this is a good verse to mark down. Ephesians 3.20. Some of you are going to need this verse this week. Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. To him be the power according to the power that works within us. By the way, the power that works within you is the Holy Spirit. So God himself living in you is the greatest blessing you will ever experience. Not the trinkets of this world. Verse 11, God says, I'm not only going to pour out a blessing for you, I'm going to protect the blessing once I give it to you. Verse 11, then I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it may not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. The word devourer here means a worm that would eat the grapes or a locust that would consume all the living plants. Okay, and when they say cast its grapes, when you have a drought, those of you who are in ag, when you have a drought, Grapes, before they're ripe, can fall on the ground, right? We just lose them. They fall on the ground and they're not sweet enough to harvest, so there's not enough water to sustain them, so they miscarry. That's another word for that at that point in time. So you're talking about a severe reduction in crop size that would lead to famine later on at that point in time. So God says, I'm not only going to pour out the blessing for you, I'm going to protect that blessing from thieves who would attempt to steal it. Let me give you a practical example here. I have talked to people for years and years and years and years, because money is one of the things they do, who have told me that God told them to give, and they didn't. And within a week, they had a car wreck, or they needed a set of tires, or the brakes failed, or the air conditioning broke, and the money got taken by the devourer. You don't get to keep it anyway. Y'all going to die and leave it, yes? yes? Right? Okay. It's a tool. It's a tool for eternity. 
Verse 12, God says, when you trust me by faith and I pour the blessings on you to the point where they overflow, guess what? Verse 12 says, other people are going to notice, right? And all the nations, the surrounding people will call you what? Blessed for you shall be a delightful land. When God blesses, you will be delighted and they will have a witness of the faithfulness of your God. You know, when you trust God with your money, it is one of the greatest testimonies to the world because the world loves the stuff. The world worships the stuff. The world believes that money is going to bring them what God will not bring them, which is satisfaction of soul. So when you give, it confounds them. They do not understand how somebody could not be addicted to stuff, to money. And when you're free from the love of money, you receive the joy of the Lord, and it's a phenomenal witness to them. Phenomenal witness. You are for now free. So now God is going to delineate two groups of people. He's going to talk about two groups of people. Verse 13 to 15 is the first group, and I want to tell you, you want to stay out of this group. You do not want to be in group one. Verse 13 to 15, they're arrogant, self-righteous, and they test God, and then they deny it. Now, you do want to be in the second group. That's 16 to 18. These are people who fear God, value His name, encourage each other despite their circumstances. So God tells this first group that are self-righteous and bitter, verse 13, Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord, yet you say, what have we spoken against thee? Right? The word arrogant literally means stout. Stout. It means hard, harsh, violent. This group had spoken harsh words about God. The most interesting thing, or one of the most interesting things about this group is they weren't speaking their harsh words to God. You know what they were doing? They were talking about God to each other. And when people go, God is da 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 who's listening? God's listening on their conversation. So these people are trash-talking, literally trash-talking God to each other, and God hears them, and God calls them on it. God calls them on it. And you know what they did when he calls them on it? They said, who, me? I didn't say nothing. I didn't say anything, right? I didn't, you know, it's not my fault. You must be talking about somebody else. So this is pride refusing to acknowledge a problem. They're trash-talking God. God tells them to get honest, and they deny it at that point in time. God tells them what they've been bad-mouthing him about. You know what they've been saying about him? Go to verse 14. You are saying it is vain to serve God. And what profit is there that we have kept his charge? In other words, we've obeyed him, and we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts. They're saying it doesn't pay to serve God. Here's an interesting thought. Everyone who serves God has reasons why. Right? So why do you serve God? Really, at the end of the day, why do you serve God? Here's a truism. If you don't know, sooner or later you will stop. If you only serve God because it's convenient, sooner or later it's going to be inconvenient and you will stop. You better know why you serve him. Why he's worth serving. This group, you know, and interesting, Rob put some pictures of us putting paint on the wall at Olive Drive campus. Um, the group that painted was serving God. 
Some of you serve God in ways that nobody knows, but Jesus knows. When you pray for somebody, you're serving the Lord. When you take care of your grandkids, you're serving the Lord. When you listen to your child struggle with parenting and you know you have to keep your mouth shut because if you tell them how you would parent their children, you will lose the relationship with them, right? That's serving Jesus by not saying a thing. And when you go away, you pray. You get on your face and say, Lord, my kid is screwing up my grandkids. I don't know how to deal with this, right? You pray. That's serving God. See, we look at serving God as something visible. Most of serving God is behind the scenes. But you know something? It doesn't matter that anybody notices. Because who sees everything? Your heavenly Father notices. He notices. He notices. We're going to get to that here in a second. These people are saying, ah, it doesn't pay to serve God. You know, and it's, he says that we walk in mourning. That means we're keeping all the rituals. You know, we're doing all the external stuff. We keep all the rules. We're doing the minimum, but my heart's not in it. We're just kind of going through the motions at that point. This group of people in verse 14, you know what they want? They want a contractual relationship with Almighty God. They want a contract, right? They view God as an employer, not a father. They don't want a family relationship. They want to negotiate an employee contract. They want to clock in and clock out in their service to God. God, I'm going to do this for you, and you're going to pay me X, Y, Z, right? Here, the problem is not that God serving God doesn't pay. Serving God pays beyond what you can think. It's how they define that value. They say, what profit is there? You know what the word profit means there? It means gain acquired by violent means or evil ends. It's a technical term. When it says profit, it's a technical term for a weaver that cuts a piece of cloth free from the loom. I want you to think of a weaver cutting a, you know, an end. When you come to the end of it, like you're sewing, you come to the end, you cut that piece off. Here's what it means. They expected God would give them a cut or a percentage of his goodies. And they defined that in physical material terms. God, I expect that you will materially bless me with physical earthly wealth if I serve you. So they wanted to serve God, but they wanted to get paid in earthly wealth only. Can you imagine if God did that and your service for him resulted only in physical wealth? And when you died, it all goes away. How would you feel in eternity being broke? Bankrupt. Because you wanted to get paid in the coin of earthly prosperity only. Most of us have no idea the wealth that God has laid up for us in heaven. And we so easily get seduced by this world's trinkets instead of heaven's treasures. I want you to know that what's coming is beyond what you can ask or think. You know, it's... These people are treating God like a young child that, that decides that mom and dad doesn't have good judgment. Uh, this child, this five-year-old child, wants to write up a contract that reduces the parent-child relationship to piece of paper. After all, a five-year-old child would certainly know what they need more than you as a parent would, right? I mean, after all, they're five years old, right? Back in the day, I've attended some weddings that... Um, the marriage vows almost sound like employee contracts, right? Literally, I'll take out the trash on these days. I'll wash the car on these days. 
if you'll do this. It's if you do this, then I'll do this, right? And you talk to those people, and you know what they say? It's a 50-50 proposition. You know the problem with a 50-50 proposition in marriage is? If both people don't bring at least 50%, there's a shortfall. And you know what happens when you have a vacuum, a shortfall in the emotional bank account? People start bouncing emotional checks. And when you start bouncing emotional checks, pretty soon you run the marriage battery dry. And that's when the big D comes along, right? So it's 100, 100%. It's a, not a conditional scenario. These people wanted a conditional contractual relationship with God and God only. When you do that in the marriage, you destroy love in the same way that prostitution destroys, destroys sex by reducing it only to physical expression. If you reduce a marriage only to a contract, you've destroyed the meaning of love. Because God's love is by definition what? Unconditional, unlimited, and that's how he wants us to love. Israel was so mixed up, you look at verse 15, that they were calling the arrogant blessed. They basically said, the doers of wickedness have it good. They test God and they get away with it. So what's the profit in serving God, right? These wicked get all this earthly prosperity, peace, health, and wealth, etc. I'm getting struggles. What's the point here? God's blessing disobedience. Have you ever had a child that had a very strong sense of fair play? Were you that child? As long as they want to be fair to themselves. Of course. You know, when mom and dad don't discipline their siblings the way they see fit, they try and take over the parenting job. Ever had one of your kids take over the parenting job? And sometimes mom and dad have to say, look, Johnny, let me be the parent. I do know what's best. We do this to God regularly. We say, God, it's not fair. Why don't you punish so-and-so for their really, really bad behavior? Don't you see what they're doing? If you cared, you would follow my recommendations and clean their clock, right? God says what? Stop trying to play God. I do know how to run my universe. For those of you who are looking for cross-references, Job 38 to 41 is a really good set of chapters when you're feeling full of yourself. Go read Job 38 to 41. It's a great set of chapters for perspective. So Israel's accusing God of letting the wicked get away with it. Here's the reality. No one gets away with anything. Remember, payday is not today. Right? Payday is someday soon. The Alpha and the Omega, he who can never lie, promised in Revelation 22:12. Here's another one to hang your hat on. Behold, I am coming quickly. What's the next phrase? And my reward is with me to give to everyone according to their deeds. Rewards are coming. What you do matters. And the king has rewards for you and I that we cannot even comprehend. Sooner or later, everybody will get what's coming. But it's not going to happen today. You know why it doesn't happen today? Because God is merciful. If you and I got what was coming today, none of us would be here. We'd have been hit by a divine lightning strike years ago. You couldn't even find the ash pile. It'd been... Right? Because we're all sinners. 
1 Peter tells us that God delays judgment because of his mercy. And we're all here because of his delayed judgment at that point. But he says here, don't settle for the mud pies of this world when a seven-course banquet's coming, right? Heaven's coming. Don't, don't forget it. You know, some people listen and some people don't. Verse 16 tells us the ones that listened. It says, Then there were those who feared the Lord, and they spoke to one another, and the Lord did what? The Lord heard it, paid attention and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. Here's the principle. Everything you do for God counts, and his rewards last forever. His rewards last forever. So this second group in verse 18, they paid attention, they encouraged each other in the Lord, they decided to obey God, and God paid attention to them. You know... Um, how many of you think God watches the details? It says his eye is on the sparrow. And what's the next phrase? And I know he watches me. Do you need watching? You need watching because you and I are sheep. And what do sheep do? Sheep wander. Sheep reliably get lost. Not only does God watch, he also writes. Have you ever thought that maybe God takes good notes? It says he writes. Written down a book of remembrance. He dictates somebody else does the writing, but what does God write down? It tells us that the names of those who treat God with awe and respect, who value him, he writes down. Verse 17, what does he say about him? These people shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my possession, that's you, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. That's you and I, his children. So verse 18, you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Here's the metaphor. Today in this life, you have people that serve God and people that don't serve God, right? Say yes, right? You got all kinds of people. It's like you have a giant backyard, and in the backyard are the children of the people who own the house and also all the neighborhood kids, right? And they're all playing, right? And you really can't tell who belongs to who or who belongs where, but when it's time to go home, only the children who belong there go inside the house. When it's time to go home, there's going to be a time to go home. And the only people that are going to get into heaven, right, are his children, He's saying, don't get confused. Everybody's in the backyard right now, and the righteous and the wicked and those who serve God and don't serve God, they're all in the backyard, and it looks like God treats them all the same. But when it's time to go where you belong, those who serve God will be with him, and those who don't will not be with him. It's not quitting time yet, folks. So he says, when I return as judge, it will become very obvious who's been serving me and who hasn't been serving me. Okay, let's summarize. We'll go back over our main points again. Here's the key idea. You know what they say in the military. Tell them what you're going to tell them. Tell them, tell them what you told them. We're now in the tell them what you told them stage. And I want you to, as we always say, I only want you to write down one thing that you are going to do something with today. I want you to write down one thing. How many things? One thing that you will covenant this week to do something about. Because if all you walk out of here is a head full of knowledge and you make no application, you ate a bunch of cotton candy and got no nutrition. And the calories were not worth it. 
I've been told by people in the know that if you're gonna in, if you're gonna spend the calories, they got to be worth it. All right, they got to be worth it. No cheap chocolate. We want the really dense stuff. Right? Okay. Here's the key idea. You are right now as close to God as you want to be. But God would like you closer, so he says, return to me. Kind of rhymes. I didn't know that. Verse 8 and 9. Some people love money more than God because money allows them to buy, by the way, only temporarily, what God knows is lethal. Frank Sinatra's song. I did it my way. Verse 10. By faith, joyfully give today, knowing that God's blessings will follow your obedience. And by the way, God's blessings are so far beyond material stuff. They include material stuff, as we've heard. God will provide for your needs, but it goes way beyond that. And verse 13 to 18, everything you do for God counts. And how long do his rewards last? Yeah, go for eternity. Don't get stuck with just this life only. Okay, now that you know... Go and do, and I do love you.